So after doing the super dark, dark web episode that I did in such a formal and really intense format, I thought next time I tackle a dark topic, I'm going to make sure that it's, I don't know, a little bit gentler, maybe. I have done a lot of research into this topic and it's as close to a conspiracy theory as you're going to get me because I do enjoy my facts and figures, but I must admit that this is something that I have been thinking about for many years and I will explain how I came across these theories and how I heard these stories and hopefully you will be able to listen to the evidence that I've gathered and make up your own mind on this whole subject. It's pretty dark again, but I think it's incredibly important that we talk about these things. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Loon Life. to tell you about the paedophiles of Tinseltown. Have you heard of the name Brian Singer? Maybe not, but I'm sure that you know his films. He's a director. His repertoire includes films such as The X-Men Saga, uh, his breakout hit The Usual Suspects, and most recently the Queen biopic Bohemian Rhapsody. I think it's fair to say that this man is a big name. When the Harvey Weinstein accusers came forward, it was like the floodgates opened. Finally, people were being believed. Finally, a man who thought he was above reprieve was brought crashing down to reality. And he had his life rightfully ruined. He reaped what he sowed. Women in Hollywood have long been sufferers of an unfair system. The casting couch was a running joke for decades, but it was reality. Women who refused powerful men's advances would see their careers stall or maybe even end. Hopefully a new standard has been set and we will no longer tolerate that kind of abuse and those who try will be swiftly dealt with. Except. There's another, darker problem in Hollywood. On the heels of Bohemian Rhapsody's success, a man named Caesar quietly filed a lawsuit against Singer, alleging he had raped him in 2003, when he was just 17. A day later, Singer's ex-boyfriend, Brett Tyler Skopek, did an interview with Deadline Hollywood, and it was published. In it, he talked about their lifestyle of drugs and orgies. I'm about to take you down a rabbit hole of predators and their young prey. I still remember the first time I heard about there being an underground network of predators in Hollywood. Being an 80s kid, my mama is a big fan of Corey Feldman and Corey Haim. The two men were teen heartthrobs after appearing in the film The Lost Boys and grew up in the spotlight. 
When they started a reality show in 2008 called The Two Corys, we tuned in to see where that fame had taken them. Haim was moving in with Feldman and his wife, and it was to be a fly-on-the-wall type show documenting their adventures. One episode in particular still haunts me. Sitting in a restaurant, an agitated Haim calls out Feldman for talking about his past self-harm in public. Not receiving the apology he wanted, he goes on to mention something else. I'll go you on better. You let me get fucked around in my life, man. Raped, so to speak. When I was about 14 and a half. By a guy you still fucking hang out with. Besides being his best friend, what did you do? Feldman responded with, You want to talk about the truth? Alright, let's talk about the truth. I was being molested at the same time by somebody else, and what did you do? Honestly, the conversation shouldn't have been aired. It was clear that these two men had some deep trauma that they needed to work through together, and using the footage for ratings does not sit right with me. However, it did open a lot of eyes to what had been unspoken for decades. The abuse of young boys in the film industry. Corey Haim died of pneumonia at 38 in 2010. He had battled drug abuse since his teens. So I started digging. You may have heard of a far-right conspiracy theory called Pizzagate. The term was thrown around a lot during the election in relation to Hillary Clinton having alleged ties to a paedophile ring in DC. I know, it's pretty out there, but the thing is, parts of it are true. Not the Hillary being a paedophile thing, that's just dumb. But a lot of the accusations around this story are scarily believable. Let me explain. Pizzagate is a debunked conspiracy theory that went viral during 2016 United States presidential election cycle. This is from Wikipedia, by the way. The conspiracy theory has been extensively discredited and debunked by a wide array of organisations, including the Metropolitan Police Department. In fall of 2016, the personal email account of John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, was hacked in a spear phishing attack. I don't know what that means and his emails were subsequently made public by WikiLeaks. Proponents of the Pizzagate conspiracy theory falsely claimed that the emails contained coded messages referring to human trafficking and connecting several US restaurants and high-ranking officials of the Democratic Party with an alleged child sex ring involving the DC restaurant Comic Ping Pong. I know, stay with me. Members of the alt-right and the opponents of Clinton's presidential campaign spread their conspiracy theory on social media outlets such as 4chan and Twitter. A man from North Carolina travelled to Comet Ping Pong to investigate this conspiracy, during which he fired a rifle inside the restaurant. In addition, the restaurant's owner and staff received death threats. Okay, mi familia, are you ready for the tea? Now I'm going to explain the parts of this that I have researched and mention a few key names. Firstly, James Elephantis. James Elephantis is a chef and the owner of Comic Ping Pong, one of the death threat receivers. He used to have a public Instagram by the handle of Jimmy Comet. It's now private, it still exists. I definitely questioned the legitimacy of the Instagram account. However, it only took a couple of clicks for me to find a YouTube video of him being asked directly about some of the more questionable photos. And he readily tries to explain them away. 
not very well, but it did assure me that Jimmy Comet is in fact his account. So why is this Instagram account significant? Brace yourself. There's a lot of pictures of kids. On their own, they might seem not too alarming, but the captions and the comments are fucking off. A quick Google will bring up a lot of his posts if you want to see for yourself. Honestly, what freaks me out most about them is the way he seems to speak in code. Terms like chicken lovers, allegedly a term that means a homosexual paedophile, that could be a jump. On a picture of a man and a baby both wearing a big yellow necklace, a little girl with her arms taped to a table, a pile of cash and some bottles of prescription drugs stating London ready, a baby lying down with the caption, why does daddy like butt? And finally, his goddaughter, a little girl, no more than three, wearing a t-shirt that says pizza slut. Like, what? Most of the images are of Alephantis' goddaughter, Karis. Hashtag Karis James as he refers to her. Part of the theory was that he was referring to the drug Carisoprodol, which is used as a pain blocker and a sedator. I mean, no, it's just her name. But one debunked theory doesn't make the rest any less disturbing. I have a pretty dark and weird sense of humour, but I honestly don't get this. Now we go a little deeper. The Podestas. John was Bill Clinton's chief of staff. His brother Tony is a lobbyist and close personal friend of James Elephantis. Now, Pizzagate began when some weirdest shit emails from John and Hillary were leaked. If you believe the pizza terminology meanings, which, to be honest, I don't think I do, these emails are dark. I only bring it up because Elephantis emailed John Podesta, Hillary's campaign chairman at the time, a version of her logo with a pizza design moulded into it. I know, it's a stretch. I'm just establishing a connection. They know each other. I'm not going to go into the rest of the emails. I don't believe that part of the theory. There are several pictures of Tony Podesta and James Elephantis together, including one of them hugging each other by a birthday cake. The three of them are undoubtedly good friends. There's also one disturbing photo of the photo fit of the men described to have abducted Madeleine McCann. Besides images of the Podesta brothers and ship me, they have themselves some doppelgangers. They were also allegedly in Portugal at the time, but okay, no, I'm not suggesting two politicians from DC kidnapped Maddie. That would be crazy, right? Well, I tried really hard to verify this claim that they were in Portugal. The closest I got was an anonymous FBI source who claims one of our FBI insiders can confirm the intelligence community indicates John and Tony Podesta were in the same place in Portugal on May the 3rd, 2007, the day that Madeleine McCann vanished. If we believe this story, it goes like this. The Podesta brothers were staying with a friend named Clem, Clement Freud, the grandson of psychopathology sex expert Dr. Sigmund Freud. In June 2016, the British Telegraph published an article titled Sir Clement Freud Exposed as a Paedophile as Police Urged to Probe Madeleine McCann Links. You see, I didn't tell you the other part yet. While searching for their daughter, the McCanns were invited to this house many times by Freud. 
claiming it would get them out of the glaring media. Clement Freud, the former broadcaster and politician and chef, was exposed as a paedophile who sexually abused girls as young as 10 for decades. Freud, who died in 2009, spent years abusing a girl who he brought up as a daughter and violently raped a teenager while he was an MP. He died in 2009 at the age of 84. When the accusations came out in 2016, his widow, Mrs. Freud, issued a statement. This is a very sad day for me. I was married to Clement for 58 years and loved him dearly. I am shocked, deeply saddened, and profoundly sorry for what has happened to these women. I sincerely hope that they will now have some peace. His former political party also issued a statement denouncing him. Now, maybe the Podestas weren't at his villa at the time. Maybe. But you see that we're now establishing a circle of some pretty shady men who definitely have known links to each other. Also, a paedophile inserting himself into an investigation like that? Not exactly unheard of, is it? Now I'm going to another weird part of the Pizzagate theory. But this is honestly straight up probably the most disturbing bit to me. I'm going to tell you about Tony Podesta's art collection. He had his own episode of Cribs in the form of a profile in Washington Life magazine. You would think he might put away some of his stranger pieces. Nope. Most confronting? I can't decide between the painting of groups of children lying in the grass which take up half of a room, or the twisted bronze headless body said to be inspired by the way Jeffrey Dahmer would pose his victims. I think my favourite part is when the article concludes with Tony regularly hosts pizza parties with his friend James Elephantis. I mean, talk about spoon-feeding the conspiracy theorists. Again. I'm not into the pizza thing. But I am going to tell you a bit more about the artists that Tony displays so proudly. Louise Bourgeois is the French-American who created the bronze thing titled Arch of Hysteria. Jerry, her model for the piece, explained it like this. Louise had actually been in psychoanalysis from 1951 all the way up until the 1980s. At the beginning of psychoanalysis with Freud, ah, another link. There was a lot of interest in the hysterical woman who would have these contortions where the body would arch up in the air. Men did it too, but Louise always thought that the psychoanalysts like to see the women. They couldn't figure out because there was no physical reason for this kind of bodily reaction. They thought it had to be some sort of mental trauma, whether it was repressed memories or connected to psychosexual repression. Louise's work is to a certain degree the same thing. It's psychological and emotional things manifesting in the body that she then transforms into a sculpture. A morbid thing to hang in your hallway, right? I apologize if I mispronounce this name, but it's, it's really hard. It's Serbian. Bjarna Jurdovic is a Serbian artist, the one who does the creepy kid paintings. Honestly, they make me feel ill and I watch crime documentaries for fun. A lot of her paintings depict children with their arms held behind their back as if they're handcuffed. One is a boy in his underwear strung up by his arms. 
another group of children on their knees with their backs to us in swimwear or in underwear. The description of one of her series, which is hung in the Hafer Museum of Art, is described as the violent themes in Serbian artist Dodovic's work reflect her development as an artist during the horror-stricken 1990s, when violence in her country peaked following the collapse of the communist regime in Eastern Europe. The body of works featured in this exhibition represent a selection from several series created by her during 1999 and 2007, in which she gazes directly into the darkest abyss of the human soul. I would just like to know that this particular collection didn't feature the paintings I described above, and I couldn't find anywhere that explained her concept for those. Look, honestly, maybe I just don't get modern art, but I don't want to get this. Alright, so to recap, I don't believe in Pizzagate, but I do believe that where there's smoke, there's fire. We've got some weird middle-aged dudes hanging out, they have weird pictures of kids everywhere, it's, it's a lot, I don't know, maybe I'm just a bit paranoid. Pizza shop owner and DC social climber James Elephantis has a creepy thing about kids and posts a lot of cryptic shit on his Instagram. His friends, the Podestas, who are both high up on the DC food chain, may or may not be so tight with British alleged paedophile Clement Freud, whose own family believed the claims, that they stayed at his villa in Portugal at the same time that Maddie McCann went missing. Hmm. Now, we swing back to the west coast and I leave Pizzagate alone. And I tell you about an open secret. This documentary was released in 2014. Five years ago, Amy J. Berg made it her mission to expose what Elijah Wood once referred to as the darkness in the underbelly. The sexual exploitation of young children in Hollywood. Matthew Valentinus, one of the producers actually came up with the idea when reading one of Corey Feldman's statements about his and Haim's experiences. I'm not going to give you a rundown of the whole documentary because the film needs to be watched in its entirety. Painful though it is to realise that this is the world that we live in, the more we expose it and the more we educate, hopefully the less people can get away with these crimes. One part I do want to tell you about is the original Netflix an online multimedia platform that produced its own content, all targeted towards teenage boys. A young Sean William Scott appeared on one of these programs that was aimed towards young gay viewers, Chad's World. The network was called DEN, Digital Entertainment Network. The company was founded by a man named Mark Collins Rector and his partner, Chad Shackley. The men met in an online chat room and Shackley moved in with the man twice his age when he was 15. Yes, that's illegal. Instead of using the 100 million in capital that they earned to create the technology they promised their investors, their company weirdly devoted most of their attention to Chad's world. It was a scripted drama about a young gay boy who goes to live with his wealthy older brother and his rich boyfriend. It seems to be based on the life of Collins Rector, the founder portrayed by Sean William Scott, and the Shackley brothers, his really young partner. Talk about trying to normalise your depraved behaviour. And so, the Predator set up his den. He recruited popular child star Brock Pierce, who he was introduced to through our favourite A-list director, you guessed it, Brian Singer, 
an early investor in Dan. Brock Pierce, who you may know from Mighty Ducks, was used to lure other young boys to star in the features and most importantly, come to the big parties that they would regularly host in their LA mansion. Now I'm gonna go into some eyewitness testimony. Mandatory skinny dipping was enforced for anyone who wanted to go in the hot tub after dusk. Young actors who attended parties were exposed to prescription drugs and alcohol and Collins Rector's gun collection. One man recalled when, as a minor, Collins Rector threatened his career if he did not sleep in his bed. Although the actor refused and camped out on the couch, he nonetheless awoke in Collins Rector's bed, convinced that a laced drink had led to abuse. These accusations eventually led to Collins Rector pleading guilty to nine counts of transporting a minor across state lines for sex, and 8,000 images of child pornography were found on his computer. He is a registered sex offender in the US, yet somehow managed to move to the UK with permissions and hire himself an 18-year-old personal aide after he had a tumour removed. He became romantically involved with the young man. Collins Rector has been notably absent from the public domain since 2007. In 2014, it was discovered that he is a shadow founder for the company IGE, known for their online role-playing games such as World of Warcraft, and has written articles and stories under synonyms. In an article proposing a new model for families and households, Collins Rector wrote that the adolescent is subject to, in today's world, the castration of biological reality and hypocrisy of control by other adults until an arbitrary age. The adolescent, he continued, is as much an adult, in brackets, physically able to reproduce and mentally self-aware, bracket, as their parents. The aging sex offender now lives alone in Antwerp, surrounded by computers and physically declining due to poor health. According to neighbours, he barely ever leaves the house. It's pretty safe to say that Collins Rector is a predator and a pedophile, and he has used his money and his power to gain access to young boys throughout his life. He spent some time in a Spanish prison. His victims may have seen a small amount of justice, but what about all the other middle-aged men that were going to these parties? Apparently Brian Singer was one of them. The world that we live in is dark and scary, and there's a lot of really bad people out there. I think it's really important that we talk about these things when we become aware of them. I'm not one for pointing the finger without evidence, and that's why I researched this whole thing so hard. I've spent hours and hours of my life scouring the internet to make sure that every single claim that I have made has been completely substantiated somewhere, be it by the police, or by the people themselves, or testified under oath. I could fill a whole episode with the likes of Rolf Harris and Jimmy Savile, disgraced, once-loved entertainers whose true evil was finally exposed. But the fact is that they don't deserve any more airtime. This episode is for the survivors. I can only hope that I've retold some of it well, and that in turn, you guys do your own research. We will end this. We have to. We just need to take care of each other.